0: As we look to the Lord now in prayer. And Father, I pray for people who've gone through the roller coaster of life in these past days. In the midst of the large three service gathering of people, we know that there are extremes to life that we have to face. My prayer is that these teachings from your word better equip us to deal with reality. There is a now and there is a not yet. We've got to embrace both poles simultaneously in order to live effectively. To do so, we need to put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We're praying that each one here has done so, and if not, are going to find that their hearts are being warmed by your grace in these words. So, Father, no matter what we have faced, no matter what we are facing, no matter what we will face, we are bringing everything to you now. Everything. We're positioning ourselves near the cross of Jesus Christ while you position Jesus Christ upon that cross. Not us. And we praise you. So, Father, in these minutes that you give us to be together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only, bring these things again now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, they were known back then as the Milwaukee Braves, weren't they, not the Milwaukee Brewers and it was 1957 and it was the World Series between the Milwaukee Braves and the New York Yankees and the Braves were going to win this World Series four games to three but there's a story that captures my heart it has to do with the time in which Henry Aaron stepped up to bat and there was Yogi Berra the catcher Renowned catcher both Hall of Famers, Barra and Aaron. Aaron at the plate, Barra behind the plate. And Yogi had a way, you see, of trying to distract the batter, do anything possible verbally to be able to get the guy to stop thinking about what mattered most. And so as Henry Aaron walked up and got himself set in the batter's box, all of a sudden Yogi looks up at him and says, Henry! You're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so that you can read the label. Next pitch, and Henry hit the ball into the bleachers in left field. And rounding third and made his way home, he paused at home plate and turned to Yogi and said, Yogi, I came to hit home runs, not to read labels. Now, here is a man who understood his intent. Here's a man who understood his purpose. This man had focus. What we've got to understand very clearly is that God, likewise, has established intent. What God has done is to establish purpose. And there's a little word, T-O that appears not once but twice in reference to our Lord's appearance, our Lord's coming, that helps you and helps me to understand the intent, to understand the purpose, you see, to answer the question, but why did Jesus Christ come? And once we get that, we're better prepared to handle the now-not-yet issues of everyday living. Now, the first of these two reasons for Christ's coming flows out of verse 4 down through verse 6. And we're going to put it like this. Number one, Jesus Christ appeared to take away sins. Notice the little T.O. This is going to define everything we need to understand, you see, about that critical aspect of our Lord's first coming. But now we're going to have to make our way into that. And so we begin in verse 4, with verses 1 and 2 as our background, our backdrop. And now the Apostle John, he looks at you and he looks at me. And he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now notice he gets his arms around us at this point. It's almost as if then he puts one hand on one shoulder, the other hand on the other shoulder, looks him in the eye. Everyone, yeah, you too, everyone who makes a practice of sitting also practices lawlessness. Let's break this down. I want you to notice here the word practice. Word practice comes from a word that carries with it something which is ongoing. In other words, it's a habit that creates a hardness. It's a habit that creates a hardness. Now you say, but Ger, I sin. I've got to be honest with you at this point. Well, the answer to this whole issue of our dilemma of sinning is found in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does, and he's realistic with you, he's realistic with me in First John chapter 2, verse 1, about this whole matter of sin in our lives, isn't he? But now what he wants to do is focus his attention upon the person who, for whatever reason, there is an area of his life that is unsurrendered, untransferred, non-transferred over to the lordship of Jesus Christ that has become lord of his life, lord of her life, and you see... It has the keys to the heart. In other words, this person could very well have have made a profession of faith in Christ, but at the same time lacks true possession of faith in Christ. And there is a difference. That's what creates religious unbelievers. Now, at this point, what the Apostle John is doing is that he is discerningly beginning to decipher, discern, distinguish. There are those who are religiously inclined and at the same time are hardened in their ways. It's those that he has in mind at this point. Beware of something that is at this point becoming a habit, and the habit is going to lead to a hardness. And when the habit leads to the hardness, then begin to reevaluate whether that in fact was true possession of faith or is it mere profession of faith. Superficial? Or is it real? And one of the tests is this whole matter of the practitioner found in verse 4. who Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, in other words, it's a lifestyle, a way of life. For some, it's a means of coping where that thing, that issue, those sins become dominant. So dominant, maybe we use or rationalize it's my way to escape. We might rationalize and say it's my means to cope. We might say it's my means for survival, or for others it's a my means to thrive. But it is a counterfeit form of thriving. Well, he goes into all these issues here at this point, And what he's saying, I want you to look very carefully at your whole issue of practicing the practice of life, the lifestyle, the way in which you live. Everyone who's got this habit that leads to a hardness of sitting also practices lawlessness. Now, lawlessness comes from a word here that carries with the idea that we are laws unto ourselves, that you or I become a law unto ourselves. We're not concerned with God's law. We are concerned to rewrite the law which was what Paul was so burdened for in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. And how many times have you heard somebody be referred to as someone who is a law unto his self, himself, herself? But then my mind goes back to an incredible story, a missionary story, the story of a man that so many missionaries have looked up to historically through the years, Ludwig Nomensen. Ludwig Nobansson was a pioneer missionary to the Batok tribesmen prior era. Now, he wanted to penetrate that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but was told he could only stay by the chieftain for two years during which time he would be able to study the traditions and the customs of the people, but not more. Well, at the end of that time, the chief, who had his evidently an eye upon the clock, so to speak, asked Nomanson if there was anything in Christianity that differed from the traditions of the Bartok. It's a great question. Nomanson, who had been studying the laws and the customs and the traditions of the people, he spoke. But before he got a word out of his mouth, the Batak chieftain added, you know, we have laws that say we must not steal, laws that say we must not murder, laws that say we must not bear false witness. We've heard you talk about your laws. But now Nomanson speaks And Nomanson responded, but you see, my God gives the power to keep his laws. The chief was startled. Can you teach my people that, he asked? And he answered, no. But God who sent his son to keep the law and die in our place, can equip you? if you put your faith and trust in that Jesus. Well, the missionary was a law to stay another six months, you see, and during that time he taught them just one thing, and it's very wise that you're able to discern what it is you start with in communicating truth. And for him it was the power of God. And so he spoke of the power of God, and at the end of that time the chief said, stay, your law is better than ours. Ours tells us what we ought to do. Your God sent his son to do what we ought to have done. And Nomanson said yes. And when you put your faith and trust in him, he gives you the power to keep his moral law. Now this, in essence, is the tension here being described in this verse. The one who is a law unto himself who rewrites the laws who does what the book of judges ends with everyone does what's right in his or her own eyes is got to grapple with what's found here in verse 4 everyone who makes a practice in other words a habit that leads to hardening evaluate where are you on right now on your life journey are there any sinful habits that are leading towards sinful hardening Also, practices lawlessness. You're becoming a law unto yourself, disregarding the law above the law and rewriting law to make it work for you rather than against you. And then he adds this. He adds this. Sin, you see, sin is lawlessness. Now, you make your way to verse 5. Are you there? When you get to verse 5, what I want you to see on the screen, or if you've got the Bible in front of you, he begins with the you know. you know. And when you get to the you know, he uses a word that is repeated throughout his epistle. Extremely important. The word you know is a very personal word. In other words, he wants you to get beyond the informational stage of your relationship with God and move towards the personal Matter in relationship with God. He wants you to personalize this. Not merely informationalize this. You know personally. Verse 5. Now here it comes. Watch carefully what unfolds. You know that he appeared. Hit the pause button. It does not read, you know that he was born. Why? Because he lived before Bethlehem is the great I am he is the eternal second member of the trinity so what we find here now is that you and I are dealing with an eternal appearance into the temporal realm Bethlehem leading onward toward Calvary which is really how, how Christmas and Good Friday come together for you and for me now allow for this text to begin to connect for you Christmas and Good Friday you know personal, that he appeared, doesn't say it was born, he appeared in order, and here then is your first statement of intentionality. That phrase was used during the NFL draft this week, describing general managers who had a sense of intentionality in the way in which they were dealing with a draft and looking as well towards what of their current players will be free agents next year and how you begin to fit together a team, not for the present only, but for the future. And likewise, now God is dealing not only with the present, but with the future. There's a sense of intentionality here that's personalized for you and for me, highly personal, highly purposeful. Both personal and purposeful. You know that he appeared, not merely was born, in order... Take the little word T-O. The word T-O, when it's related to Jesus Christ's appearance, carries with the idea of intent, carries with the idea of a reason for, carries with it the idea of intentionality. That's a philosophical word somehow made its way into the NFL draft. Not sure how that happened. But regardless of it all, intentionality is here It is purposeful and it is personal and it relates to you and me as we deal with the whole tension of the now and the not yet confusion, chaos that sin has produced in our worlds. And this T.O. is the key that unlocks the mysteries of life. That is what little T.O. does for you and for me. He is allowing for you and me to take something so small and unlock something so big And what is that bigness? In order to take away sins. This is the magnitude of which God is now addressing the issues we face at this point. Now, notice that his purpose then in that first coming is to take away sins. Bear this in mind. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the penalty for sin. Was paid. Subsequent to the cross of Jesus Christ, in the now, the power of sin is broken. But in the not yet, still to come, the presence of sin is removed. Beware of trying to import the not yet into the now so that you can just live as though the presence of sin has been removed. To do that, you're going to lead a very disillusioned life. And you're going to wonder, why has sin so impacted me? Why has sin so impacted my life, my family's dynamics, my work experience, my health, and on and on and on it goes. But the realist, who understands very clearly what verse 2 is all about and how all this fits together, understands that there is a past where the penalty of sin is is paid. There is a present where the power of sin has been broken but still remains. There is yet a future, the not yet, you see, where the presence of sin is removed once and for all. Now here's the danger, here's the challenge. Don't try to import the not yet into the now. you're going to have a disillusioned experience with the realities of life. On the other hand, if you are very willing to embrace the two poles of the now and the not yet, that God has done something of significance at the cross, God is doing something significant in the present, and God will do something of significance in the future, and you allow for the two poles, the now and the not yet, to be brought together, and you connect now your understanding of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, then you're better able to address the whole issue of sin. He came the first time in order to take away sins, the penalty of sin broken. J. Wilbur Chapman was At one-time president of the Moody Bible Institute. Mr. Chapman tells the story of a physician-turned-pastor. This happens every so often. And anyways, this physician had gotten done speaking on the subject of sin, and afterwards Chapman tells us that there was a man that came up at the end of the service, and he said to the physician, Pastor, um, I've got an issue with regard to your emphasis on sin. Call it something else, an inhibition, an error, a mistake, a, a twist in our nature. Now, bear in mind, the story is coming from a prior era. And the physician pastor said, I understand what you mean. There is a bottle in my office, he said, a little bottle. And it contains strychnine. And if you were to look at the bottle, you would see that the label reads poison. Question Would you suggest that I change the label and paste one on that says wintergreen? And then adds this perspective statement The more harmless the label, the more dangerous the dose. What are you facing? Jesus did not die on a cross for false labeling. That would be purposelessness, not purposefulness. What a biblically based, doctrinally oriented congregation embraces in all of its services is real reality. The two poles, the now and the not yet, the penalty, the power, the presence factors, all brought together, where we now deal with the sum total of the highs and lows of life, but the constant, that we have a resurrected Savior who died for our sins, but was raised on that third day, and will someday come back. And so what you and I have to do is to deal with real labels. And what we do in our own personal lives is we get real with our souls. And what parents do, they get real about reality with their families. And they say, look, we are in the now not yet tensions of life. We've got to bear in mind when we go to that surgeon. And we are hoping that that surgeon is going to fix what ails us. That we don't fall into that tendency of wanting that position to produce a glorified body, because if we think that way, we are bringing and we are importing the not yet into the now. And then we're disillusioned when we get sick the next day. And the chaos of life remains. So he's realistic here. You know that he appeared, that's past tense, but it says he appeared, not born. In order to, there's the T-O, take away sins, not merely mistakes, and in him there is no sin, and that is at that point because he contrasts the sinless one with the sinful ones, like Highlander, the righteous one, Jesus, like the unrighteous one, Highlander. And then what he is saying, in essence, is that the sinless one, Died for the sinful ones. The righteous one died for the unrighteous ones. And that is implicit in this statement. In five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And here is the basis, the grounds the credibility that he brings to the table to make it happen, and in him there is no sin. Behold the Lamb of God, John wrote in his gospel account, who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. So now you inch forward a little more and you say, okay, in light of that, what do I do with what comes next? Verse 6. Notice the negative absolutes, which appear not really once, but twice with the no ones. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. What do I do with the absolute negative at this point? I work with it. Okay. No one who abides in him. Oh, does the Apostle John like the word abide, doesn't he? We've noted it in prior weeks. He's got it again for us. He's still reminiscing upon what Jesus Christ taught in that upper room where Jesus Christ had talked about the significance of abiding in him. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But now and I left this off last week so that I could touch it this week. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus had also said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now the person who's got a habit that's leading to hardness, The person who makes the profession and confuses it with possession when it matters of faith doesn't understand the richness and the vitality of abiding in Christ's love. But then he adds this, still in John 15, 9, onward to 10. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. In other words, obedience to Christ is the measure of our love for Christ. And so here you have yourself now positioned with this whole idea of abiding. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If he would go to that extent, not to confuse the labels, but die in our place for our sins, penalty of sin, paid power of sin broken but bear in mind presence of sin still to be removed you got a six on your hands no one who abides in him keeps on sin you got motivation now no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him because your focus is upon jesus christ it's not merely informational Personal. Now, once you've got your first TO down, and you noticed how that first TO was linked to the idea of He appeared, not He was born, He appeared. Now you're ready then for your second TO, and once again is tied to that word appeared. Because, second of all, Jesus Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared, you see, to take away sins. Verses 4 through 6, and we italicized verse 5, to take away sins. But now, beginning in verse 7 down to verse 10, you see your second teal, and it's embedded at the end of verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. But We've got to lead into it once again. That's John's way of having us work through these issues. So he uses the phrase that Jesus used in that upper room. When he looked at these brawny men like Peter, brawny men like John, fishermen, John, his brother, known as the Sons of Thunder, little children. And then adds this. Let no one deceive you. In other words, just because they call it reality doesn't mean that it's reality. Just because it's a reality show of life doesn't mean that it's real reality regarding life. And so now he says, little children, let no one deceive you. In other words, don't allow the counterfeit to be the real. Just because you might be dating someone, you see, that makes a profession of faith, doesn't mean that they have real faith. Be able to distinguish between the counterfeit and the real. Profession, possession. And then he goes a little further here. Whoever practices, there's that word again, it's something which is ongoing. It is a habit, you see, that hardens only in the good sense. Now the word, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But notice then the contrast. He sets the positive, he's a well-balanced man. Now he sets the negative, but whoever makes a practice of sinning, interestingly enough now, he adds, is of the devil. In other words, there is an allegiance here, but adds perspective, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, to destroy the works of the devil. Now let's begin to build this thing out. The evil one deceives. We're told in verse 7 let no one deceive you. Been deceived recently? Are you able to see through the deceptions of this world? Since the Garden of Eden episode, where the evil one entered into that garden, very reality based, very truth based, the evil one brought in deception by not coming across as he is. He came across as a sip, just more crafty than the others. And so now what he does is that he approaches Eve, not she, approach him. And he carries he introduces, he brings about a religious conversation. He doesn't declare himself an atheist in his first sentence. In fact, he doesn't do it in any of his sentences. He just carries a, a conversation, in fact, about God in the realm of a deceptive conversation. So now the deception's at hand, and so the Apostle John wants us to be able to distinguish between the real and the phony, the counterfeit and the authentic. So he balances this out. He speaks of the fact the practice of sinning is of the devil, allegiance there. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So now, you begin to think through this whole matter of, really now, Gary, seriously, the devil? Well, R.C. Sproul can help us at this point. The first point we must understand, you see, in combating the devil is that there is really a devil. In many segments of our society, even of the church, the concept of the personal devil is regarded as primitive mythology. I remember asking a class of students who were studying Western philosophy this question. How many of you believe in a real personal devil? In this class of 30 students, three indicated they believed the devil was real. That took courage. The other 27 indicated they they considered the devil a myth. I then asked the class, how many of you believe in the existence of God? To my surprise, all 30 indicated they believe in God. I proceeded to my next question. It's, it's dangerous, by the way, allowing R.C. Sproul to take you down any kind of path. How many of you would be willing to define God as a spiritual being who has the ability to influence men for good? And they were all willing to allow for that definition. Then I asked, why is it that you affirm the existence of a spiritual being who has the ability to influence you for good, but you deny the existence of a spiritual being who can influence us to evil? But here now is the basic response I got. Modern science has made it impossible for educated people to believe in the devil. So now I question this point by asking, And what discovery of modern science has made the idea of Satan no longer credible? Is it the second law of thermodynamics? Is it the laws that govern nuclear fusion or fission? What law is it? Well, at first, my question was met with stony silence. No one could point to a specific scientific discovery at that point. So finally, one student said, well, really, the idea of a devil seems to fit in the category of ghosts and goblins. How can anyone believe in a sinister fellow in a red flannel suit with ho- cloven hoofs, horns, and a pitchfork? sproads The student was not responding to the scriptural image of the devil. His idea of Satan was a caricature. His devil was a fugitive from a Halloween party. You faced evil head on in your recent days? Or take C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, where we find Screwtape, a uh, senior devil, counseling, guiding, tutoring Wormwood, a junior devil. And Screwtape says to Wormwood, I wonder if you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, speaking of Satan himself, in their estimation of reality, not ours. So, Screwtape says our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. In other words, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. And meanwhile, we watch the issues of North Korea unfold. And we watch the tensions in Iran continue to rise. And we ponder the pundits who are continuously evaluating as to why the world is in the condition that it is in. But I would argue that the believer has got something that the unbeliever lacks, and that's an understanding of real reality. You've got an understanding, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, of what evil truly is. And you can identify it. Jesus did not confuse labels on that cross. He came, number one, to take away sins. He came, number two, to destroy the works of the devil. Now look very carefully. We've got it italicized in verse 8. There's that little word, T-O, again. And it's associated with the word appeared again, not born, appeared. He appeared He appeared and was to destroy the works of the devil. And I want you to know, works is in the plural. It's not in the singular, is it? Why? Because there are a multitude of works that are part of his his scheme, his strategy, his network. To produce, to instigate rebellion would be one example. To produce temptation, another example to create false teaching in otherwise sound religious circles. A third, these are various works, you see. What Jesus Christ did, past tense, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, but notice very carefully, it does not read, he appeared to destroy the devil. Does it? No. No. If you think it reads, "He appeared to destroy the devil," what you have done is to import the not yet into the now, and leave you confused as to why things are the way things are. Again, it was on the cross, past, where the sin was penalty was paid. The penalty, past. It's in the presence where we experience the power of sin broken. But it's in the future where the presence of sin is removed. Don't import the not yet into the now. It's to destroy not the devil in the first coming, no, to destroy the works of the devil in the first coming. To destroy the devil, that's the second coming. Because the Apostle John penned the book of Revelation and what you and I are told that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire itself where the beast and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And now what you've done is you've connected your dots once again and you're dealing with Reality. And the now not yet begins to crystallize in the way you approach parenting, the way you approach your singleness, the way you approach the counterfeit versus the real in this world that we find ourselves in. So it's not that he came, you see, to destroy the devil in the first coming, but rather the works of the devil in the first coming. And that takes us right back then to that story that Robinson Crusoe had offered that we considered just a couple of weeks ago, where Friday he's talking to Robinson Crusoe at this point. Is God not as strong as the devil? And Crusoe answered, God was stronger than the devil and above the devil. And therefore we pray to God to tread him under our feet. But, responded Friday, Why God no kill the devil? So make him no more do wicked. I like Friday. I call him Good Friday. What you got to bear in mind here at this point, though, is that Friday is confusing. Destroying the devil versus destroying the works of the devil. And what he's really trying to do is to import the not yet into the Now, Eliminate the pain that we experience day in, day out. Eliminate the suffering we experience physically, emotionally, relationally. But what we've got to bear in mind is that God's sovereign plan involves both now and not yet. We don't overemphasize one and underemphasize the other. And furthermore, when it comes to the matters of the evil one, we don't overestimate him, nor do we underestimate him. We've got a very balanced view of all these things. And once you're balanced and you've got the italicized of both verse 5 and verse 8 marked in your soul, now you get practical and you say, okay, I can get my arms around 9 and 10. No one born of God, will just make it quick, makes a practice of sinning. Born of God? Didn't the Apostle John in chapter 3 of his gospel say, you must be born again? Connect the dots. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Dual emphasis here. In other words, you don't become a practitioner. You don't allow the habit to become of the hardness, Otherwise, we've got profession but not possession. So bring it home, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. Who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You must be born again. In Thomas Edison's latter years, his factory in West Orange, New Jersey, was destroyed by fire. So much of his life's work went up in smoke and flames that December night. At the height of the fire Edison's 24-year-old son Charles was looking frantically for his father finally found him calmly watching the fire his face glowing in reflection his white hair blowing in the wind from the biography my heart ached for him said charles he was up in years and now everything was going up in flames But then he spoke. Charles, where's your mother? When I told him I didn't know, my father said, Find her. Bring her here. She'll never see anything like this as long as she lives. I was taken aback. But the next morning I understood. Because the next morning, my father looked at the ruins and looked at me and then said, there is great value in loss. Where everything is burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. There is eternal value in starting anew with faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's stand for a word of prayer. And so, Father, if there is anyone here this morning in any of these three services that has felt and experienced head on the chaos of evil, may they etch the little T.O. upon their hearts, their souls, their inner beings now. And understand the purposefulness, the intentionality of the cross of Jesus Christ. That He came to take away our sins. The penalty of sin has been paid. He came to destroy the works of the devil. But there is more still to come. Keep us from trying to import the not yet into the now. Keep us from trying to import the now into the not yet. Help us to stay balanced. There is one Father who comes here today wants to start fresh, start anew. Show them that ultimately, internally, and eternally, they need to put faith and trust exclusively now in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so they can experience the fullness of the now and the not yet in relationship to you. And for all who know you and love you and are facing real reality with you, May they find now, Father, your purposefulness, your intentionality for living in relationship to you. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. God bless you.